0: Now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers. Airport, please stay on board. Next stop,
1: road station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. When you're ready to pop the question,
2: the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online.
1: This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we reflect on Liverpool's draw with Spurs in the Premier League at the weekend. Is the title race now over? We'll also talk about style versus substance after Jurgen Klopp's comments about Antonio Conte's approach. Uh, We'll also be talking about the bottom of the league, of course we will. Everton and Leicester are on the agenda. Uh, We'll talk about the end of the WSL season and the EFL as well. All that and much more on this episode of The Game. Hello again, welcome back to the game. I'm Hugh Wissancroft alongside the two Toms this week. Tom Roddy and Tom Clarke are here to look back at what was another, I think every weekend at the moment's pretty eventful in the Premier League, so I don't know why I keep saying it. Um, but we did have a big game, one that was earmarked for a long time as a potential title decider. That took the focus on Saturday night. Spurs holding Liverpool to a one-all draw at Anfield. That's a result that really wasn't a big help for either side. Liverpool three points behind Manchester City, who thrashed Newcastle At the top of the table, both teams have three games left to play. So I've got to talk about the title race first, I think, gentlemen. And the feeling that the title race was over after that. I went on social media. I've already been warned this morning by Tom Roddy to to not look at it too much. I've got to say... I was surprised by the number of people saying that's it, the title race is done because it's three points. The goal difference before Manchester City scored five anyway was quite tight. And ultimately, they still, either way, I think needed to lose a game. Manchester City and we are still in that position although there's a game down so are you, either of you in the camp that that, meant, that result meant the title race was over?
2: Well can we, we need to stop here and what? make the point that um, we are all members of the media and citizens of the UK so we're of course supporting Liverpool aren't we? <laughs> we're of course supporting Liverpool in the title race um, I, I think... I think um I think it's I've, I've thought it's over for a little while because even if a Liverpool didn't slip up against Tottenham and the reason for that is because um I think the slight difference between the two teams has played out in the way it um the way it has done because Man City are far more suited to a Premier League um run in with the way they control games and Liverpool's style I think is that slightly more suited to a cup competition, Um, the chaos of a cup competition and and City have the control of a a league title and with both of them three games remaining, um, I don't see City slipping up anywhere really. What do you think Mr Clark?
3: Well, I've been pushing the whole Liverpool going to win the title, not because I'm a Liverpool fan. I think uh, any regular listeners will know that. I'm actually slightly biased towards Manchester City because of where I grew up. But I I just think that City might have one slip in them still. And, you know, we live in a world of extremes and the title race was so close going into this weekend that when it then shifts by three points, it's, oh, it's all over again. Actually, if we were going into a title race with three games left, with three points between them, we'd all be getting very excited. And I, Tom makes a good point about City and how they control games. And it was remarkable watching, you know, against a pretty good Newcastle side, how they just went through the gears from 2 0 and it ends up being 5 0. Like that, they're probably the only team that really does that. When Liverpool win 5 0, it's like a blitz. Whereas City, it feels like a kind of mechanical grinding down of the opposition. There was a period, I think, where it flashed up that. Newcastle hadn't made a single successful pass in about seven minutes, yeah. and City had made a hundred and eight or something yeah, ridiculous. Yeah. And in the office, we were all at, then Newcastle put five passes together. And we were all O-laying in the office, <laughs> just, just because it was nice for them to have kind of broken the uh, broken the um, rigid way in which they were trying to get back into the game. But I, City have still got West Ham away. West Ham will still be pushing uh, for that European spot in the top six. I still think that could be a difficult game for them. Um, I think Wolves away, this midweek, is a difficult game for them. I'm trying to pick out that kind of thing to... The one game. Yeah, that one game, that one moment. And I wonder whether that might be it. A lot of people said, oh, Newcastle are playing well. But as Tom mentioned, City at home is a pretty uh, dominating uh, and a scary proposition. But I do wonder whether those away games... So I've, I've said for a long time that I think it's going to be a tight race. And I've back to Liverpool for a long time so I'm going to stick to it now
2: we got our answer as well though didn't we because uh, we all wondered how City would respond to going out of the Champions League and I mean I, this is a different, totally different subject but been quite disappointed by Newcastle really um, lately in the way they played against Liverpool played against City but we got our response in how into how that City would respond and um, it's funny seeing Guardiola asked about it afterwards and th- this is what you know what did you expect he went slightly uh Tony Montana's style mm. with the old scattergun everyone in the way that he kind of responded <laughs> with you know all the
1: pundits all the media all the press um it shouldn't uh, uh, have been a surprise uh, uh, maybe Guardiola this is something that I, I picked up on last week and I tweeted about it the reaction to Manchester City throwing it all away against Real Madrid was very different Mm. to what it would have been if it was Manchester United or Liverpool, definitely. I mean, there was this sort of response that was, aren't Real Madrid great? What an incredible comeback. You can't beat them. It was almost like, you know, we were in Spain, you Mm. know, whereas I think it would have been a real, I mean... Manchester United and Liverpool would have been hung, drawn and quartered if they, if they'd have done that. I mean, a good Manchester United back in the day because of the size of the clubs, because of the number of fans of the clubs, mm. I think there was a perception that Manchester City's fan base maybe isn't as big. It's not as important. I mean, I I actually found the sort of, the, the way that that match was poured over at the end, d- it did lead to, I, I didn't really feel it was as far as the point of people were happy that Manchester City went out. I didn't think it was that far, but it was almost like, an indifference to it as British broadcasters and journalists maybe Guardiola was reflecting that
3: yeah I think he does slightly have a point you know Tom was uh, making a very jokey and accurate point that in uh, his intro earlier about the media and things and it's not true that everyone wants Liverpool to win as I said if I had to pick between them I'd rather Man City win but there is something about City and probably their rise to prominence with all the money um, and the backing that they've had in recent recent seasons and signing all the players, and then having Pep Guardiola, it it does feel like if Liverpool were to win it, and were to win, and when they win trophies, the admiration is greater than it is for City. And that's another thing. Again, we're kind of talking about City beating Newcastle in this very uh, rudimentary type way. That's incredibly impressive to come back from that and produce that kind of a performance and win five nil at home. When a lot of people were wondering, oh, is it going to affect them? Kyle Walker's injured. All these kind of stuff if Manchester City go on to win the title this year and hold off this Liverpool side that's one of the great title wins of all time and I see Guardiola's point slightly that I wonder whether that will be reflected as much in the coverage and the reaction afterwards
1: I did like Bruno Guimaraes. I think I've pronounced that correctly, response on Twitter apologising to the Newcastle fans after their 5-0 defeat. And the Newcastle fans basically saying, no, no, this isn't the one that you need to apologise for. <laughs> it's, it's, it's City, it's OK, it's City away. You know, we, we weren't expecting much. So it was interesting to hear you say you've been disappointed by Newcastle of late because, my word, the tables have clearly turned at that football club this season if we're disappointed with them losing 5-0, something that we would have expected a little bit earlier on in the season. I know what you mean. They didn't do much in the game, but I think where they are right now, like a lot of clubs, it's like, look, this isn't a one that we thought we were going to win. And it was, it, do you know what? I was thinking when it went to three, right, this is it. You need to score goals here. And it was interesting to hear Guardiola say at the end of the game that at half time he told the team, we need more goals. Because those two goals near the end were really celebrated, including right at the end from Sterling as if they were really big things so goal difference clearly could well be um a very important thing in terms of this title race and it was interesting to see that City have already um earmarked that if you see what I mean um injuries may be a factor from here on out particularly defensively for Manchester City no John Stones no Ruben Diaz no Kyle Walker between here and the end of the season according to Pep Guardiola so they'll all, they'll all probably start the last game of the season <laughs> do you think that will affect them? Well yes yeah of course it will um, the only thing the only thing is
2: that City are that team who we speak about pretty regularly where it, they're, they're a machine such an impressive machine where they don't tend to be significantly affected when key players are missing. But, you know, we, we, we know um, the quality that Carl Walker has, what Ruben Diaz has added to that team as well. Um, so, yeah, I think it will affect them. And of course, um, as Tom touched on the fact that they have to play West Ham, I, I see that as a, a key part because I suppose the goal difference, why it's so big... They've got four goals, and it just gives them that cushion that if they if they do slip up at some point, they have a point still, don't they? You know that that goal difference acts as a point for them at the moment, mm-hmm. and it's not as
1: it's not massive at all. So. Th- th- yeah, it's, it's, it's going um, to be big for them. Although I, I'm looking at, at Liverpool's trip to Southampton as a potential 7-0. <laughs> I'm just going to say it now, OK? I think it's a possibility they flip the uh, tables in terms of the goal difference as well. But I wanted to go back then to events uh, at Anfield. I mentioned a little bit earlier on the one-all draw between Liverpool and Spurs. Let's talk about that match in itself, the way that Tottenham approached it was exactly what many people expected. And the result is, in fact, what many people did expect. They saw this as a potential, a potentially difficult game for Liverpool and it proved to be that. Yeah, yeah, well, it,
2: it did. Um, and wh- why would you approach it any differently? I mean, they are... It, we've been talking all season about how City and Liverpool, there is a huge gulf between City and Liverpool and the other teams in the division um, and the task of <laughs> the task of each game is to get points from it. Use do it the best way you can. And Antonio Antonio Conte found that way. Um, I mean, Klopp said after the game he referenced the Atletico Madrid the way they played in that European Cup game and uh, said it's you know this isn't my style playing in this in this uh, yeah in this style. Mm. Um, but Conte's not been there. A hell of a long time. He's not been able to get the players in he wants. He's he's one of the best at at, at finding ways to get points, um, and adapting and being versatile. And it's funny because you know Jurgen Klopp's first game in charge of Liverpool seven years ago, 2015, was against Tottenham at White Hart Lane, and we saw we slightly saw the style of of how they're going, how they were always going to play this heavy pressing, but. I was looking back, one of my colleagues from that game wrote that Liverpool were a team of a goalkeeper and ten James Milners. <laughs> that gives you a slight indication about... And, of course, that was the year where Tottenham were going for the Premier League title. Mm. So one of the leading teams above, far above Liverpool in the table. So what was the purpose? The purpose was to get a point out of that game to to indicate the style you were going to play, which was there, but also to get a point, to have a good start. Conte's just done the same thing.
1: Jurgen Klopp asked about Spurs defending, said, I'm sorry, I'm the wrong person to ask about this because I don't like this kind of football. But that's my personal problem. I think they are world class and I think they should do more for the game. And he actually referenced the low percentage of possession that Spurs had as well. Do you think he's right? Should Spurs do more for the game? I mean, any regular listener
3: knows where I'm going on this. (laughs) Absolute nonsense. I mean... (laughs) We don't need to dwell on this too much. I really like Jurgen Klopp and he's been fantastic for neutrals in the Premier League. But this is a frustrated man talking a bit of rubbish Mm -hmm. after a game. Let's be honest. His Liverpool team did very similar to Man City at City. Scored their two chances out of three shots on target maybe. And then kicked the crap out of City for the rest of the game in order to take a point. And the thing is, we've seen teams park the bus in far worse fashion than Conte's team did Tottenham could have won that game and the goal that they scored was a brilliant goal yeah fine Emerson Royale's hoof into the air was a little bit uh, uncouth but it went where it was supposed to go to Harry Kane who was completely unchallenged by the way Virgil van Dijk not fancy going for a header best defender in the world Um, or or Trent closing him down or
1: any of them yeah very strange you know to be honest if you watch that
3: that goal from Liverpool's defensive point of view it's very strange passive very passive exactly Van Dyke kind of wanders around and then, oh oh God, Son's scored. So, you know, if I was Jurgen Klopp, perhaps I'd be focusing on that instead. But I thought that was a brilliant goal. I thought Tottenham played really well. You know, and as Paul Joyce has written this morning in his piece of analysis, this, you know, Liverpool are only getting better. We're talking about them adding stars like Luis Diaz, strengthening the squad. This ain't going to be the first time that someone does this to them at Anfield. It, It isn't the first time and it will not be the last. So Klopp needs to kind of Get it out of his system and work out how they're going to beat them because it, it was a little bit one-dimensional as well, wasn't it? We've also got stats in the paper this morning talking about how many crosses that were put in. Mm-hmm. It did feel a little bit like the uh, slightly more attractive version of "give it to Trent,
2: stick it in the mixer." It did. I. <clears throat> the thing is, well. Um, is that I, I agree with Tom that it's it was sour grapes really the the reaction and maybe maybe he'll regret it I don't I don't know but football isn't necessarily all about style overall because it's it's about it's more about moments isn't it because you know Leicester City when they won the Premier League title did they play the most attractive style in. Premier League history and English football history no far from it city liverpool played much better but it was a moment it was an incredible achievement and one that th- th- this game is all about you know wigan winning the fa cup it's exactly the same thing you know who who won who who came fourth in the premier league ten years ago. It, it, no, people don't remember that kind of thing. Um, it's, you, you can reference and we do regularly reference the styles and the, the best styles of football we've seen over the years but it's about being effective as well and, 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 and being successful.
1: Antonio Conte has lost just one of his six games against Liverpool in the Premier League. Uh, He remains undefeated at Anfield, three draws. So he clearly has a plan that works. Um, Before we move on, I've got to say, Tom Clark has just... You've just unfurled a, a sweet treat. on I have. On, is I there have. any particular reason why?
3: Well, this is another regular listeners will know. We've had this a few times before, haven't we? Cupgate gate, Hugh, you know. Cupcake gate. Cupcake gate. Yeah. not easy to say. It's not, but I did all right, didn't <laughs> you I? You did. <laughs> Very well. Could have been worse. I'm not going to say it again. <laughs> but we're heading into the part of the show where we're going to talk about the other games. And then there's a chance we might mention Brighton picking up a big win this weekend. Mm-hmm. Very impressive win. Against a team that I've decided we're not allowed to mention, and when I say we, I mean you, Hugh okay. We're not. You're not allowed to mention them. You've said they've had their worst moment, and I know that I didn't. I've not. I've, not, I've never bought you a cake before. <laughs> no. But I have today. But you only get it if you manage to make it all the way through the show without mentioning this team that play maybe in red sometimes. Okay. And this is, I've mentioned them once already. You have, and I let that slide because okay. it was in context. But I'm gonna, you know. It's got a lovely little... It says, I love you. It does. <laughs> in the colours of that team that you're not allowed to mention. Right, okay. But you only get it if we make it through this segment without you talking about them, okay? <sighs> okay. He looks really keen for the cupcake. I'll try.
1: It. I think it looks delicious, oh. and I do love a cupcake, unlike you. So uh, <laughs> I haven't forgotten when I bought you one and you threw it back in my face. But anyway, <laughs> we'll talk about that some other time. And, and look, it was a good time for you to to get that out, in fact, because with a certain ex-player from the unmentionable football club at the weekend on Twitter. um, I went over this substance versus style argument with a certain Gary Neville. Um, And I think you've already answered it. Trophies versus that, you know, a pragmatic style with trophies versus no trophies, but a beautiful style. And I think we both said we would rather the style. I don't know if that's because I'm a supporter of said Mm. red club. Mm. And I've had lots of success previously. Arteta's doing well, though. Arteta's doing well. And because I've had lots of success previously, maybe I don't mind as much not having more future success. This is really tough. (laughs) We know where you're going, then. We're talking about this club without without mentioning them. That's That's cheating. That's almost cheating, I'd say. So... Well what you told me not to mention them. No, so you,
3: uh, but your broad point is you're going to you're going to team me up to say that I I don't care kick the crap out of them, you know, waste so, yeah, time. yeah, that's
1: it. So you 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 Yeah, no. I your mean, club. Yeah. You would rather see them try and play the right way in inverted no, commas. No, win win things. Oh, you want to win things?
3: Yeah, because win right. games because okay. I, you know, I I I think probably slightly if you're a fan of a team in the lower leagues, then probably your answer is going to be slightly different as much as, you know, pass it out from the back stylish football is you know really becoming a factor in all leagues at all levels i think ultimately you want to win things you know we had the cowley brothers in charge they won two leagues the conference and then league two the style of football wasn't the best in terms of being attractive we'd often like waste time we every game you'd be like what time, what points the goalkeeper gonna go down pretending he's pulled a hamstring so that we can have a little regroup you know they were one of the first managers in the lower leagues to do that but we loved it because they won two league titles and we got up to League One. And then, you know, we started playing more attractive football and a lot of the fans were going, hoof it, get it wrong." <laughs> so I think slightly, if you're a fan of f- f- uh, teams in the lower league, your answer is going to be different. But I like to think, regardless, I'm a guy who thinks football's about
2: winning. But also it's about d- the the definition. I mean, trophies, yeah, but success as well, because, you know, we're... Go- we- Talk about the bottom of the table and Everton and you look at what has happened there and Frank Lampard going in there in the first few weeks he played, tried to play really nice football, attractive football and they got stuffed and they adopt a pragmatic approach and it looks like, right now it looks like they're going to stay in the Premier League, which for Everton isn't a six, isn't what they, their objective is in any Premier League season, but... At this moment in time, and for Frank Lampard and for Everton, that is success. Yeah, I, I would just say, Tom, you have made
3: me think um, about another point about what is success. I guess for teams like my own, Lincoln City, who are now in League One, probably as high as, you know, we'd love a crack at the championship, but that the, the gulf is, is huge. Success for us now is probably being a really successful, sustainable team with a successful model business model if you like and I think what a lot of teams further down the pyramid are finding that that model comes with playing stylish football because if you do that then top sides or young players will come and join you and then you can be the club that either has young players on loan from top clubs because they're like oh they play the right way you you 18 year old attacking winger can go and play there or you pick up academy talent who know that they're going to come and play stylish football for two years and then get the two million pound move to a championship club so perhaps i need to modernize my thinking on what success is because
1: maybe stylish football does come into it a little bit more okay all right just wanted your answer on that i'll try not to mention that team as we move through the podcast eric ten hard plays nice football doesn't he <laughs> He plays lovely football.
3: i think this is tom roddy making a late claim to steal <laughs> steal the cup he
1: wants the he wants the cupcake this is unbelievable right now it's a challenge let's talk about the bottom Tom you mentioned it a few moments ago Everton they've won away in a top flight match for the first time in 15 games since beating Brighton back in August in what was their third game of the season actually Frank Lampard's side ending a run of seven consecutive away defeats they leapfrog Burnley who were comfortably beaten by Aston Villa. Leeds drop into the relegation zone after defeat at Arsenal. Let's talk about Everton first, though, because they beat Leicester away from home um, and they go to Watford on Wednesday night. If they win that game and they make it three consecutive wins, are they safe?
3: Yes, I think so. And again, this is me just, you know, everyone knows we make predictions on this podcast. I said Everton would just be safe. I think Tom alluded to it there. Lampard, as much as we've criticised some of his kind of coaching methods and things, or sometimes lack of, seemingly he does seem to have got them gelling and you know really battling, if you like, all the traditional uh, stereotypes of when you're in a relegation scrap. And watching that game against Leicester, as much as Leicester were completely haphazard, Everton did feel like they were pulling together um, very much with Jordan Pickford saving the day again. But it does feel like that mentality, more than anything else, is pulling them in the right direction. And then when it comes to a game against an already relegated Watford, you'd have to hope if you're an Everton fan, that'll be enough to pull you through.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a weird one with Everton staying up. Um, I don't want to take credit away from them. But my word, I feel like the games that they've got their points in against the bigger teams, Mm. I mean, have been gifts. I mean, it's a weird one because you looked at the fixtures, didn't you? think? Oh, I almost said it. You nearly <laughs> said it. I could see you. I was, I was looking at you going, don't do it, man. Don't do it. That team. Aside but- from the Northwest that plays in red, um, handed them a victory. Yeah. Then you're looking at Chelsea like, yeah. they've got to beat Everton. Come on. And uh, they were awful. Mm. I mean, they were awful. They give... I say, I say give Everton a win. Everton did what you'd expect a side battling for their mm. lives to do. The, other, the opposition just didn't do what you'd expect teams in their position to do. And that's why I'm like, wow you know you you look at what leeds did with their five games unbeaten you look at what burnley did you think they can't pull away Mm. because Everton are just picking up results all against teams that frankly should be better including Leicester at the weekend yes I know they came off the back of being knocked out of the Europa League Europa Conference League semi-finals excuse me Um, but again you just expect more and it's just working out so well for Everton now they get into a match that you actually think they should win they'll probably lose but (laughs) (laughs) but, they um, they really could
2: couldn't they because the problem is you get to this stage and Watford are relegated now and (laughs) what 10 to happen when a team gets relegated the pressure's off mm. and and they go and get a win mm.
3: just, like, just quickly like to add a further big up to my man Jordan Pickford because when you think about his career and some of the labels that have been put on him in terms of being a little bit haphazard a bit kamikaze at times not able to cope with the pressure you know this is a guy who's a top international player now coming into his own and producing some big performances in big games for his team which I think a lot of people early in his career wouldn't have said he's capable of doing. They said he's more kind of it will be completely random he'll pull off a save and then he'll give away a goal. That consistency he's been fantastic and as Charlotte's written in her report for the Times today he was definitely man of the match again.
1: It was funny. You, weren't you guys having an argument about who he would play for if Everton got relegated <laughs> in the office recently? And I just the first thing that came to mind was Edison's understudy for Manchester City. You know, good on the ball. He's too good for that. Left footed. You know, play, you could play Edison outfield then, maybe if you got yeah, to the yeah. Listen. <laughs> I think I think it was referred to as well a tale of two keepers at the weekend mm-hmm. in terms of Ilan Melier for Leeds United against Arsenal as well um, I wonder how worried Leeds fans should be at this point in time um, you look at their remaining games I think Burnley play Spurs Villa and Newcastle Leeds have Chelsea Brighton and Brentford um, Everton after their game against Watford, face Brentford, Palace, and Arsenal, I'd be extremely worried if I supported Leeds United at this point in time. Hugely, especially when you consider the fact that they did let
2: Bielsa go, and they still go—they're still heading down. You know, if they still go down, and I kind of referenced it the the, the other week when they lost four 0 and you had Jesse Marsh still punching the air, and it just seemed like a a weird tone around that defeat. And, of course, the game this weekend, uh, I mean, it was just total capitulation, wasn't it? To go 2-0 down and then Luke Ayling just losing his head, going in feet up, studs up, double-footed, inside, well inside half an hour. And it's not only that, because, of course, the problem is that game, it was probably the frustration that that game was lost, another defeat, we're in danger, but... Now they haven't got Luke Ayling for those for those final games of the season. One of your most senior and um experienced and capable defenders for the most important period, the, the most important period of the season for Leeds now. And it maybe in a way it sums up the 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 culture there. It might represent it right now that it's a little bit frantic, it's a little bit desperate, it's a little bit too emotional. Yeah, I think that I think that's right. Emotional is a very good word for it. And when you think about
3: what we reference with Everton and Frank Lampard, is that the emotions that he's got going at Everton are the right kind of emotions for for, for the relegation scrap. Mm-hmm. And at Leeds, they're not they're they're too in it. They're too involved. Um, you know, because Rafinha nearly got himself sent off as well yeah, after yeah. after the uh, ailing red card. And I think watching that game, if it wasn't for Calvin Phillips, I think Leeds would have completely you know capitulated in a in a bigger sense and lost 6 maybe had another man sent off he he really kind of pull, pulling people away from the referee calming things down and then actually had a pretty good game so there's a hell of a lot of pressure on him in the final games but that is why I'd be you know Tom's touching it there as a Leeds fan that's why I'd be most worried and that's why as an Everton fan I'd be most hopeful
2: compare compare those players and what Frank Lampard's done is brought in experienced players one of the hmm. key members of of this relegation fight it's been Fabian Delph you know and he's been so reliable um, a leader in that team as well as Pickford you know Pickford's quite rightly taken headlines and taken the focus but he's been a leader as well an experienced member Um, so you're spot on
1: I think Fabian Delft really gets a raw deal I mean I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna labour the point but I do think you know at times his experience you know what is he 32 years old now what he's done at Manchester City you know he he can't be a bad player I just think obviously the body's let him down last couple of years since he's been at Everton and if he's out there and if he's fit he can add something particularly to a side who is facing something like relegation because you spoke about the experience there you think about the likes of Calvin Phillips as well and his love for Leeds you need players like this to pull you through um we're going to talk more about the relegation zone I think and who might go down in the coming weeks in just about every podcast so uh, we won't dwell too much on it and including I think something that we will talk about at the end of the season whether we need leads to stay in the top flight. That's one that we'll come to, I'm sure. I did want to talk uh, a little bit about that game involving Everton though, but from the Leicester point of view, I can't believe how bad Leicester City are. I'm sorry. Um, We haven't spoken about them much really in this second half of the season. Let's remember this is a team that finished fifth in the last two campaigns. So if it was a bigger name, the likes of some other clubs, we (laughs) we might have spoken about them a little bit more, but I do think we need to talk about them. Four wins in their last 16 Premier League matches I know they've been affected by injuries, but none of their summer signings from last year really have added much to their squad. And those players, four or five of them, were brought to add depth to help with the European campaign. I know they've got to a semi final in the Conference League, but Brendan Rodgers, their manager, hasn't found a tactical solution to any of their problems for me. He's been speaking for weeks, in fact, since the early part of the season about a squad overhaul. But I actually think at some point, you've got to talk about the manager as well. One of the key things set pieces. I mean they've conceded more than anyone else. He was asked about it at the end of the game, they conceded another one. Mm. As a coach, those are the sorts of things that you just have to start getting right after a period of time. Yeah, the set pieces thing is remarkable. We've referenced it before uh,
3: on the show. It as you say, Rodgers is asked about it nearly every pre-match and post-match press conference that is one of the most fascinating aspects of their season and I think we're going back to our earlier debate about style and success and what it means Leicester City since winning the Premier League would be a fascinating study maybe someone should write a PhD about it in modern football because you know they had Claude Puel pragmatic Ranieri went quite quickly you know no fairy tale for him Rodgers as you say Hugh great success FA Cup top six they're real contenders now this is their new home they've barged in on the traditional top six and then this season you have people like myself who've made apologies for Rodgers and for what's been going on lots of injuries yes but you get to this point in the season and you watch them and I was watching that game and as you alluded to with Everton being perhaps fortunate to face them it looks so directionless in terms of tactics in terms of players in terms of what's going on you talk about their play, you know, will they keep be able to keep Tielemans now in the summer you'd probably say probably not mm-hmm. they've got a lot of talented players still there though, James Madison, Harvey Barnes, you know, some really impressive players, Fafana when he comes back and he's fit they've also got incredible experience so the idea that they're down there where they are in the table 14th
1: yeah 42 it, points from 34 yeah, games
3: it's it's mad they're in that kind of bracket of teams that we're not talking about in relegation because they're just above it and they have been for a while so they've never been part of the conversation but if they finish just above then I, yeah it, it's a strange one I, i'm still gonna stick with rogers oh, because i think what he he deserves and partly as a neutral i'd be fascinated to see what happens but I do think start of the season he'll be under huge pressure if he stays
1: see it's interesting you speak about Leicester City as some sort of PhD case study got because <laughs> well, they're becoming that for me because if they are the club that they purported to be and wanted to be they would sack their manager who, well, yes, whoever, whoever it is true given this season um, yeah. because it isn't like we had a few injuries and we dropped from fifth to, to you know ninth or tenth you know they're fourteenth. if they finish 14th or 15th Yeah. I know we all respect Brendan Rogers and we expect his achievements there and we think he's a very good coach but you would expect a club that has spoken about wanting to be in Europe and wanting to achieve great things and wanting to attract great players and extend the stadium and all of this stuff to say that's not good enough
3: yeah I mean, if you look at the t- if looking again at the table, you have Leicester and Southampton next to them, and a- reports this weekend that Ralph Hasenhuttl could be leaving the club in the summer. And we were talking about it um, yesterday in the office, and that's a classic kind of mutual consent type thing. I.e., we've both had a run, nothing terrible has happened, we've had some highs, we've had some lows, and you could make that case for Rodgers and Leicester as well, because then the teams above them, Brentford are the new boys, Newcastle have just changed manager, Villa have just changed manager, Palace. Patrick Vieira is a contender for manager of the season so Southampton and Leicester if Southampton are making changes Leicester fans could be thinking the same
2: I think this is the most this has been the most disappointing period of the season with Leicester because as Tom said I I kind of up until now I, I, I could make excuses really easily for them but there's just not been the performances that you expect from the depth there because I mean even even with excuses with Vardy being injured, for example, when Patson Daka came in, I was told we have found like the replica of Jamie Vardy. He is he is the exact replica, but it's not really. You know, he scores he scores the other day, but it's not. It's just not worked out in that way. They look like a team who have given themselves excuses, really. And I agree. I would stick with Rodgers because of what he's shown in the past at Leicester because of what he's done and because if he gets the transfer... The, the, the problem is if he gets this overhaul in the summer and then ends up getting sacked a few weeks into the season it's a similar case of what we talk about with Everton all the time where you give all the power and all the decisions to this one person and then they're gone.
3: I guess that's why it could be a really fascinating, and going back to the PhD case study though, if they kept him and if they did that overhaul that Tom's talking about, you would expect, I mean obviously if they then find themselves bottom after 10 games then the decision is obvious, but if they found themselves in mid-table having had this incredibly poor season, then again it becomes the the non-Everton thing of where you're allowed to be 13th, 14th again with the idea that by the end of the season you're about 8th or ninth, and then next season you're then ready to kick on again and finish 5th. That That's where it could be the fascinating case study in terms of modern football having a young manager still who's incredibly successful already in his career giving
1: them that time on the basis that will be a Premier League club that's fine. It's an interesting one. I think by by the time we get to Christmas, we'll be having the uh, who do Leicester think they are argument about well, the size the point, of the club. That's the
3: point, isn't it? Like, that They could be the the mid-table club. They could they could veer between being yeah. different clubs. It's that pressure to be that, that point you say, Hugh, what are you? It's to be that that thing every season. So if, if a team says we're a team that finishes in the top six every season, West Ham are going to have a similar challenge as well in the summer. Are we going to be that team again? Because they've done incredibly well under Moyes to stay up there again, even with just one striker, Mikel Antonio. So they've got that challenge. Will they accept dropping
1: down to 10th for a season? Who knows? Right. Well, we'll leave it there. Up next, we'll be talking about Voldemort FC and their huge defeat to Brighton this weekend. (laughs) Stay with us on the game. Remember, if you're enjoying it, like us, rate us, leave us a review. Make sure you're subscribed. So up next on the game, we've got to talk about events at the Amex between Brighton and the name, which I cannot mention, team from the north of England. Correct. Well done. As accurately as I could describe them without getting into any trouble. So all the praise here is going to Graham Potter's side. It is all about Brighton. Their biggest ever top flight win at their, can you guess it, 356th attempt. Wow. And it had all the hallmarks of a typical Brighton win that we've come to expect under uh, Graham Potter. Not every single week, but when Brighton are on it, when they are playing at their best, we know that they can produce football like this. When it all clicks, Tom Clark, they are a fantastic side.
3: They really are. And, you know, we've talked about them before. Hugh, you in particular have talked about them not taking their chances um, and scoring enough goals. Well, here here they really did do that. Not just the kind of one-on-one chances, but goals from the edge of the box. They were finding the target, finding the bottom corner. And and they are they are they are really enjoyable to watch, and it's great to watch it when they click because it feels like a kind of momentum thing of when they get that second goal, you feel like they're really in the groove then. But but they're a fascinating team to think about in some of those narratives that we were talking about before in terms of Leicester, Southampton, you know where they go now because I think this was the season where we were kind of going okay, well what can Potter do? Can he push them on a level? And I feel like he has. They're now up to the mid-table standards. And now you have to wonder, are they happy with that? Is that, is that where they go from it? Because the thing is, when you watch them, you feel like there's more to come. You feel like there's mm. more to come from Potter. You feel like there's more to come from some of those players in that team. And you also look at them and think, as you've said, Hugh, if you added a striker, <laughs> if you added a, you know, maybe ball-playing defender, then they could go up again. So they're really fascinating now when it comes to the end of the season when they get these big wins, because now... They're not, they're not the new boys on the block who get this win. And it's one of the most famous, famous days in the history of Brighton. Yes, it is. But it's also, as you say, becoming a little bit expected now. And that ratchets up the pressure a little bit.
1: I think you've got to give them credit for the way they've responded as well. They've had a couple of bad patches of form. Hmm. Between mid-February and mid-March, they lost six games in a row. They've now got four wins in their last six games. Those against Arsenal, Tottenham, Wolves... <laughs> and the team I can't mention, Um, which is actually quite a stunning turnaround as well. So they've found something not just in terms of their football, but in terms of their resilience. I think there's an element
2: with Brighton and Potter that is slightly similar to the conversation we were having earlier about Pep and what he was saying. And the reason I say that is because we uh, sit here today and talk about Brighton uh, very effusively because of the performance yesterday But then you have, I think it was back in November, in the Leeds game, where you had fans at Brighton booing a nil-nil draw. And what we've got to remember is how far they've come. I, I totally understand what Tom's saying about, you know, where they can go now, because... Because of what what is at the club, the infrastructure is incredible. They've got a brilliant manager. They've got great players. They've got great people around the place. But this is the, the progress is definitely there because this is. I think they're on forty seven points now, and that's the highest they've achieved in the Premier League with three games to go, I believe. And as you say, it's the potential that's there. And do you know what I found really interesting about? Um, listening to the players after the game the other day was that you had Pascal Gross say about Potter he always looks for weaknesses in the, the opponent that's the game plan every week is the weakness in the opponent and and maybe that's an obvious thing and it happens everywhere but Brighton are one of those teams who you kind of sometimes think well they play the same way they try and play the mm. same way week in week out and sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't they're missing a striker and I know I'm slightly because of covering Chelsea my mind centers around them quite often uh, but Watching Brighton, I think they're they're slightly similar in a way to how Chelsea were last year, where you didn't have this out-and-out striker. But you find ways where there is danger to the opposition in every single aspect of that team. I mean, that third goal came from Robert Sanchez hitting a perfect ball out from the back. And it was quite controversial when Matty Ryan got dropped and Robert Sanchez comes in hitting a perfect ball out from the back. Cucurella, the summer signing, who's been amazing, scores a fantastic goal. Trossard is now joint top scorer. He's playing wing back for that game. You know, Solly March on the other side. It, they're, they're such a dangerous team now and they're just they're, they're brilliant to watch and, and I hope they go on to do the things that we've said they can do.
1: Rumours last week, we didn't address them on the game podcast. We don't, we don't always like to talk about rumours, but since we're talking about Brighton, If Antonio Conte were to be lured away Mm. from Spurs by Paris Saint-Germain, Graham Potter, club's preferred preference to to replace him. I mean, I I don't necessarily want to talk about Potter to Spurs, but do you expect there to be... I mean, we spoke about Leicester a little Mm. bit earlier on. Do you expect there to be clubs interested in Graham Potter this summer? Yeah, definitely, I
3: think. And and that's normal. But he he seems to be at ease with that and Brighton seems to be quite at ease with that but I think that will also come into the conversation this summer whether it's about Potter or whether it's about some of those players you know because we talked about it before very briefly when he scored an excellent goal against Arsenal but Trossard for me is a player that could move on to a club a kind of top six club in a similar kind of Diogo Jota type move Eve Basuma as well has got to be on the radar, to use that favourite transfer deadline day term. Um, Sanchez as well has had a fantastic season. So that will be another interesting factor because you talk about, say, a club like Southampton, say, who've been very popular and at times have been praised for their great performances, for the way they approach the game, for how entertaining they can be, for how they take on big teams in in a very uh, positive way at times. But then they've had points where they've lost Sadio Mane, Um Tadic managers including Pochettino in the past so Brighton are at that point now where it, it could go one of two ways if they lost say Potter and a few players or if they kept Potter and added some players that so
2: that's that's what's the really fascinating part of their story now the, the thing with Potter um and I'll say this and tomorrow oh, tomorrow you Tottenham is it, a podcast <laughs> <laughs> and t- tomorrow Tottenham will probably announce him as manager but the thing with with Potter is that his idea isn't to go into a club and build for a couple of years and and move on what he did at Osterson's building them and then he comes over to Swansea the plan there was always to to make them into a Premier League. Is doing what he's doing at Brighton, essentially, mm. to, to bring them back to that level again. And he planned to stay there for a long time. And even right on the very last day before he did decide to join Brighton, even then, I think Swansea thought they were going to keep him because of that very reason. I, I think he's someone who commits to a project and... Um, and I don't think it will be easy to to pull him away from it.
1: We will see what the future holds for both Brighton uh, and Graham Potter. But an excellent win this weekend over one of the Premier League's worst sides of late.
3: Oh, oh! That I'm going to have to send that to the cupcake adjudication panel. Actually, what? that was
1: what? you straight very, very close to the line there. Anyway, it move didn't, on. Didn't get close to the name. Anyway, <laughs> um, we'll be talking about the WSL final day next. We will also a little bit later on reflect on the final day uh, for a couple of leagues in the EFL this weekend uh, and some stunning results there so make sure you stay tuned we'll be back after this VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen
3: VoiceOver on settings
0: so you can navigate it just by listening
3: books contacts calendar double tap to open breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11
1: Right, up next, let's get to the final day of the WSL season where Emma Hayes' Chelsea made it three titles in a row with a comeback victory over the women's team of the side that I can't mention, unfortunately. Uh, Molly Hudson joins us. She's got absolutely no idea why I can't mention it. Molly, you can mention who Chelsea played. They got the job done in the end, three titles in a row. How big of an achievement is that?
0: I think it was massive. And I think actually the the kind of chaos yesterday, um, obviously I was at Kings Meadow for Chelsea, Manchester United. Um, and then Arsenal West Ham was kind of the other side of London, and Arsenal started the day one one point behind Chelsea, and over the course of the 90 minutes, the, the trophy kind of changed hands five times. And I think the the fact that Chelsea overcome what was a pretty shocking first half came through it, won the title, just sort of sums up that team under Emma Hayes. Even when they're not playing that absolute best football, I think they've just found a way again and again this season. And I think that's probably what has really made the difference because actually, if I look at the way Arsenal started the season, I'd say that no other team in the Women's Super League has played that well this campaign, but it just wasn't sustainable. Whereas kind of using that experience that Emma Hayes has got and a lot of her squad have got now as well, having having been there several years, they've just really found a way to grind out the results. And then, I mean, it always helps when Sam Kerr scores two absolute worldies.
2: Molly, what, what was Emma Hayes like uh, after the game? Because I kind of got this sense listening to her speak last week uh, that this has been a real grueling season, and she's she's brilliant fun, isn't she Emma Hayes she was she was explaining about how playing three games in a week is like having a hangover three times in a week but without the drink um she's just brilliant but what what was what was um what was she like after the game? What's it been like this season?
0: A hangover sounds horrendous without the drink. <laughs> <laughs> suddenly don't want to be a football manager. Um she was great and I think it was really cute because we we kinda it's the first time all season that we've done in person post match media and King's Meadow um over the pandemic built like a media room and we've never been able to go in it. And um Sam Kerr come in and was like, I'm not speaking without Emma. So she, so she rang up Emma Hayes and was like, come on, where are you? And Emma Hayes walked in and like literally attached to her was her son, Harry, who's three. Mm-hmm. And he like, wouldn't let her go. So she was like, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to bring Harry in. Um, and then um, she was, just, she was just great. You know, she, she always is. She's a, she's a great kind of voice for the women's game. And I think we need that because, if we want the women's game to grow, and if we want you know us to talk about it now and it to get column inches and all this sort of stuff, you need people that are pretty honest. And I think you know Emma Hayes is very honest, and I think she was she was very good on on Sam care and Sam was talking about how she doesn't mind how she scores, whether it's a world or a tap in. She just wants best what's best for the team, and you could you could just see Emma Hayes sat next to her grinning because that's exactly why she brought Sam to the club. You know, they they turned down the chance to sign other big-name strikers, and it was more about the personality. Emma Hayes is so big on the personality and what, what players bring to the club, not just on the pitch. And I think Sam is just a perfect fit and a perfect sort of marker of, of Emma's recruitment, really, and what she wants the whole squad to bring. And I think... Yeah, she came in and she was like, I'm just absolutely exhausted. Um, maybe the maybe the hangover from this one will be a bit longer than the normal game. Um, but I think she was great. She she talks about the fact that as a manager, obviously all of your coaches will will tell you a lot of things about kind of things you should do, especially at halftime, you know, it was a very poor first half from Chelsea. And she said that I think my biggest strength is being decisive and choosing which of those bits to to put in place, basically. Um, And I think that that is what she's good at. You know, she, she's very straight to the point over the years, she's found the best way to kind of communicate in a calm manner and literally that second half was just completely transformed and you could see that not only was that from the double change that she made at half-time, but it was also clearly in what she said.
3: Molly, in your piece, um, you say that Hayes puts this as kind of her proudest trophy because of the difficulties that Chelsea have had this season. Where, where do you rank it in terms of her achievements?
0: Yeah, I think it's right up there and I think it's probably just because so many key players have been out Um you know, Frank, Frank Kirby was there um, yesterday, come out in, you know, in their leggings, obviously not still not part of the the matchday squad with this ongoing fatigue issue that she has. You know, so many sort of players throughout the season have, have kind of been ruled out for various bits. And that's without even talking about the, you know, ongoing ownership problems. And Chelsea, you know, were, were really badly affected by that. The women's team, it, it was... I, I remember speaking to the press officer and she kept laughing and saying, I think they're doing it every day. We have a game. So I think the day that Abramovich was sanctioned, um, Chelsea women were playing live on Sky Sports. Um, so I think I think for that reason, it has to be right up there. And I think also just for how competitive the league is this season. I think we've seen so many clubs, not just the top three, but other teams that have really impressed, whether that's Tottenham or West Ham, And I think the fact that they've managed to stay consistent while also dealing with all of this other stuff is probably a biggest kind of testament to the work that Emma Hayes has done with that squad. And I think for that reason, it it has to be right up there. And I think especially if they can obviously win the FA Cup next week, I think you have to look at this as a real era of dominance for that team because it, it kind of goes forgotten because of COVID that, they actually won the domestic treble last season because obviously they only won the FA Cup in December because it was delayed because of the pandemic. But, you know, if they, if they win the, the treble last season and the double this season, I mean, that's that's pretty remarkable with how good the competition now is, the, is in the Women's Super League.
1: It's interesting you mentioned the strength of the competition in the WSL there, Molly. Um, I, I do have a couple of questions on it. Firstly, though, I know you've referred to it, Arsenal they did play very well this season they fell short in the end but they did help to make this title race into something pretty special how much credit do they and their manager deserve?
0: Yeah massively and I think I, I read something this morning that they I think in in the kind of league table compared to last season on points per game they're of the big clubs, they're the one that have made the biggest leap um, in terms of what they did last season. And I think Jonas Eiderveld, the, the manager, has come in and played a massive part of that. He's really changed the way they play. They're a lot, I suppose, a lot more direct now, but also without losing the the typical Arsenal way that we all associate with with any kind of Arsenal team playing. And I think it's been, it's been quite a nice hybrid because I think at times last season, people kind of... Found out how to get around to Arsenal under Joe tomorrow, and I think speaking to the players and speaking to Jonas, you definitely get the the impression that this is the start of a project. And I don't think a lot of people at Arsenal thought they'd get this close. You know, they were they were only one point behind Chelsea, and I think that probably exceeded expectations um, in terms of what they could do this season. I mean, they were they, they lost to Birmingham, mm. who were relegated. And if they hadn't have lost that game, they would have won the league and, and been invincible. Um, so the margins are so small at the top of the game now, with with it being so competitive. And yeah, I, I think it'll be interesting to see if obviously Meadmarsh stays or not. I think mm. she 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 mentioned yesterday. Obviously, I wasn't at the game, but I, I listened to her BBC interview, and she talked about the fact that you know again she hasn't won a trophy this season mm. and you can completely understand where she's coming from. You know, she's one of the very best in the world and she wants to be winning trophies. But my caveat to that personally, which is maybe a bit controversial, is I don't think she's been that great this season. She still scored a lot of goals and got a lot of assists in comparison to the rest of the league. But in comparison to Viv's standards, she hasn't been quite as good. And I don't know if a part of that is the uncertainty of whether... You know, she'd be staying or going and and that's kind of rumbling on. She said she's she's going to have a kind of a week off and then kind of make that decision. Obviously, Barcelona in particular have been heavily linked with her. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it just needs clarifying because if she does leave, obviously, how do you replace mm. Miedemar? You know, how do you replace the, the record goal scorer in the WSL? It's not going to be easy. But on the other hand, if she is going to go, you just want to know as soon as possible so that you can start trying to figure that out I think
1: just finally Molly recently a few days ago it was mentioned how many extra viewers the WSL has got I think over 15 million already and they're watching for much longer in previous years as well I think that came from Sky Sports in terms of their live TV coverage Um, it it was an important season for um, eyes being on the WSL Um, but it was a two horse race in terms of that title in the end What more do you think the WSL needs to add? For me, and maybe you can answer this, it's important that there is a stronger Manchester City for sure and their City rivals need to be stronger too.
0: Yeah, I think Man City actually ended the season arguably in better form than any other team. And I think they just got, you know, they were incredibly unlucky that the makeup of their team was more or less the entire Team GB squad. And they basically just started the season absolutely knackered. And a lot of them picked up injuries and it just really, really affected the start of their season. I think at one point they had 11 players out and and a lot of those were key players. So I think Man City will be right up there again next season. I think what has been, you know, Manchester United uh, under a new manager, they was in a transition period this season, but we saw yesterday they can really hurt the big teams. And again, they nearly got Champions League. So I think a really positive thing is that both the title race and the Champions League went to the final day of the season. Um, I think we've seen huge growth in that sort of middle, middle teams, you know, the Tottenham's and the West Ham's talking about that table of, of who has improved the most from last season. Um, West Ham and Tottenham are right up there. Um, and I think Liverpool will be a really big addition as well. Um, obviously, Birmingham City going down, which is which is a shame in terms of their history in the women's game. But I think it's fair to say they they haven't treated their women's team properly um, in recent seasons. So I think Liverpool coming up is is a positive in that respect. And I think I would I would just say the broadcasting has been absolutely top class this season. And I think it's the way that Sky have come in. And they said this before they announced the deal, that they were really going to give it the sky factor, you know, give it give it everything, give it the pundits, give it the live tactics screens and all of this. And that's exactly what they've done. And I think that that is why it makes it a more attractive product and all of the advertising and the marketing that they've done around. It has been massive for the league. And I think towards the end of the season, we really saw the attendances picking up as well. And hopefully we can kind of follow up on the momentum of a, of a home Euros and really see that next season. So I think it's been a really important season that I think we'll maybe look back on and say this was when the Women's Super League really started to reach a kind of mainstream audience. And, and a big part of that will be the TV deal in the same way that it, that it was for the Premier League all those years ago.
1: Molly Hudson, thank you for that update on everything in women's football, it seems, and also that final day of the WSL. And of course, Molly is going to keep you right up to date with all the events throughout those home Euros during this summer. So there's absolutely no rest for the wicked. Molly Hudson, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. So the final day this weekend in a couple of divisions in the EFL, the championship and League Two threw up some pretty astounding results. Um, thank you very much, Opta, for this one. Fulham's 4-0 loss against Sheffield United, the heaviest defeat by a title-winning team in their final league game of the season in the Football League since Newport County lost 5-0 to South End United in their final game. Can you guess what year? It was in the third division South in 1939. 1939 absolutely ridiculous um so fulham you're a joke okay <laughs> shocking season shockers yeah uh, listen bournemouth also promoted alongside fulham uh, since we last spoke so they will be in the premier league next year we're going to look ahead to the playoffs in the championship on thursday they get on underway a little bit later on this week The EFL story of the weekend, though. Joey Barton's Bristol Rovers gaining automatic promotion from League Two. We've got to talk about this. A 7-0 win over bottom side Scunthorpe. They needed a five-goal swing over Northampton Town on the final day, but it became seven thanks to the Cobbler's result, and they achieved it amid chaotic scenes. Let's call it that. Yeah, absolutely. And as
3: Bill Edgar says in uh, his excellent column, as usual on Monday, uh, Bristol Rovers were the first team in league history to require a seven-goal victory to gain promotion in their last match and achieve it. Playing around seven miles by road from the River Severn, they won 7-0 at home to already doomed Scunthorpe, who became the first club to concede at least seven goals in their final fixture before dropping out of the league. So some great stattery there from Bill, but... <laughs> on the face of it absolutely remarkable we should say as well Scunthorpe fielded what would largely be considered for most fans and especially Northampton Town fans a weakened team in terms of playing a lot of young players but I mean Bristol Rovers under Joey Barton have been excellent at times this season they've got a really interesting mix of players they've got a player who Achieved promotion with Lincoln, uh, called Harry Anderson, a young player, young winger, who could have stayed in League One, moved, persuaded to join them in League Two. He's been important for them this season. They've got another Anderson, Elliot Anderson, 19 years old, on loan from Newcastle, who's been excellent as well. So two Andersons have been a big part of their success. But, I mean, you'd be absolutely devastated as a Northampton Town fan, wouldn't you?
1: Does Gunthorpe actually deserve any of this criticism over their team, by the way? Because we know they've been in dire straits. Well, they have, yeah. Squad. They've had an
0: Train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers. Airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station.
1: iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone.
3: Awful From season. From the start of the season. Yeah, I mean, they they don't owe anyone anything in terms of... And, and you could then make the flip argument that actually, if you give some people some debuts, they're going to try even harder than mm. the players who may be already on the beach as they say but a remarkable turnaround definitely.
1: In terms of the, the English Football League season this 7-0 result is that is this just peak EFL you know that final day it's not just in, in that league or in, in that result um, the last couple of weeks of the season have been tense yeah. thrown up loads of results that we didn't expect some great performances I mean generally speaking there needs to be more attention we apologise on the EFL <laughs> Always but
3: for all EFL NFL fans like myself we're now at that point where if you're a fan of the team in the playoffs you're going to suddenly going to get a load of attention because that's when all the neutrals start watching your games and going the playoffs are great and you're going oh I hate it so so <laughs> much please go away and stop watching us because we're into that period now and you know, there's going to be some fascinating games. We should briefly just come back to Fulham so that Tom can tell us about his excellent piece with uh, Harrison
2: Reed at the weekend. Well, talk about a team who keep winning seven 0 actually. Yeah, but, true. Um, <laughs> it was great. I mean, the thing with Harrison Reed was it was great to get access and detail to to the story of their whole. Uh, campaign and it went. You know, the beginning of the season. A lot of people would have predicted Fulham would be promoted, partially because of being the the yo yo club that they have been over the last few years, partially because of the parachute payments available to them, um, and because of the players they were able to keep. But it was just you've got to reflect on last season when they were they were centred around. Um, lone players essentially they had a striker Alexander Mitrovic who wasn't really scoring I um, asked Harrison Reed about th- the summer and the possibility because there was the possibility of him leaving last year and you could just tell from his reaction how terrified they were that he was going to be going um, and you can see why because ch- uh, top record scorer in the championship now with 43 goals and You know, he backs him to have a great season this year in the Premier League. Third attempt, 27 years old, off the back of this season, Harrison Reid thinks he can do it. But what I feel like with Fulham is that they are now made up for this season of a group that have a point to prove. Um, And they're not. we'll, We'll see what business they do in the summer, but I don't think they'll do the whole big loan group again but Marco Silva has a point to prove in the Premier League Alexander Mitrovic has a point to prove in the Premier League a load of those players do too
1: The thing that I would say about Fulham is, I mean, the teams that have come into the Premier League and stayed up recently and done well um, in their first year have brought a different style of football. Something that we're not expecting from what would traditionally be considered an EFL side. Sheffield United had something very different under Wilder, of course, Leeds United, Marcelo Bielsa and Brentford, Thomas Frank. You know, they've all presented really great tactical football sides in their first year back in the Premier League I think there is something that that is different about getting out of the Championship to staying in the Premier League and it is definitely a footballing um, conundrum, if you see what I mean a tactical conundrum, do you think this is for both of you that Fulham can answer those questions this time around in the premier league it 's not just for me about players because you know we look at the, those other sides I mean some of them didn 't do much in terms of recruitment, it was a style that kept them in maybe,
2: but i I think the the difference is that you know you mentioned Sheffield United and then you have Brentford as well. I think the difference sometimes is that teams. Uh, um, Reading when they first went up, they sort of ride the crest of a wave. To be honest, and you, you're complementing a good style of play with a lack of pressure, and I think that's been the issue for Norwich and Fulham over the last few years, and Watford as well. In a in a very different way, is that the pressure on on them is the accusation of being a yo-yo club. We cannot go down. Whereas the likes of Brentford coming up, they think. We're, everyone expects us to go down. You know, we we spoke to Thomas Frank at the very beginning of the season before it all kicked off and he said, how many of you tip, are tipping us to go down? And I think that was what they had on their side. This, there wasn't any pressure on them in any way.
3: Yeah, I mean, Fulham have that pressure. I think maybe what will help them is the experience of having some of those players and the manager having gone through the new team, new boys in the Premier League before. And in terms of that, kind of badge that Brentford would put on you think we're going to go down for someone like Mitrovic you think I'm not going to score goals so that and that's as good a motivation as you can get but in terms of the how Silver has kind of done this at Fulham like what, what was the most telling thing that Harrison Reid told you
2: in terms of the insight of to what the season's success has been built on? There were two, two aspects in a way one is probably off the pitch and one is on the pitch and um, and and off the pitch was actually his his consistency and i don't know whether he's uh, talking about um, scott parker as the, as the previous you you sort of assume sometimes that the comparison is there but he was just talking about his consistency the highs and the lows he was always this, the same person and he described him as a as a genuine happy person Consistently, and that may seem you know your local landlord might be able to manage Fulham. Then you might assume, <laughs> but then <laughs> put that together with the the tactics because it was really the, the probably the most fascinating part uh, from what he told me was his role in the team, which was you know he was usually a number eight, but he was playing number six a lot this season, and he was he was explaining how. Marco Silva had addressed his his positioning on the pitch and how even just the slightest steps and movements he makes could open up and allow for an attack for Fulham. And he said, sometimes we would play a game and I would barely touch the ball and he would be absolutely buzzing for him. He'd be over the moon and just, you know, slapping on the back, this sort of thing just because of the little movements he had on the pitch that opened it up for the rest of the team. So I suppose that kind of, the the two elements there of, of being a guy that you have faith in, a guy that you want to play for, and also a guy who tactically is is, is perfect for them and has shown them that them, the, the changes he is making are effective.
1: We're going to see if Fulham can do it next year in the Premier League. Going to be an interesting one to keep an eye on. Something else for you to keep an eye on. David Stockdale, the Wickham Wanderers goalkeeper, um, pretty much the player of the League One playoffs so far. They are through, finishing sixth in the league, knocking out third place, MK Dons. It is all because he came on the game podcast. I am sure of it. He's on his way to Wembley. I'll probably be there watching him as well. So make sure you check out part one now. Part two is coming very, very soon. And on Thursday, we'll be looking ahead to the championship playoffs as well so can't wait for that one wait hold on a minute it's the end of the podcast
3: okay fine yeah, you've I'm done just... it Tom what do yeah. you
2: reckon the adjudication panel I did it I did it I'm a generous person I did it yeah Here where's my cupcake Goes to him I love you Hugh Wasmcroft there. do you know what I
1: was about to say are you going to tell me that you love me and you said it immediately well thank you thank you I know you hate cupcakes as well so yeah. I'm going to enjoy this one uh, it's extra special. Thank you, guys. Let me just hold this aloft.
2: I, I hope avid listeners uh, reference the amount of times that, that you, United... Oh, my God, now I'm done. <laughs> You're allowed to say <laughs> yes. it. Yes. I hope they count how many times they were actually referenced
1: without being named that would be that would still be, he, I, he, I, he did it and that's, that's I think cool. I dropped in a couple of really good ones that were just you almost didn't even notice them as well so <laughs> if you want to listen back to the podcast and, <laughs> and see if you can count up as many times you can tweet me at Hugh Wisencroft. I'm sure we can discuss it there thank you very much for listening in the meantime we'll be back with you on Thursday remember for more award winning journalism from the Times and the Sunday Times make sure you're subscribed you can download the Times app as well Check it all out at thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game.